Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. Sometimes I want to just put something weird in and make it uh, people soup and say, I'm Holly V. Wilson. I really, as you were, as you were introducing yourself, I mean, a little inside baseball knowledge here. This is the fourth episode we have recorded this session. (laughs) And I really almost said your name. Yeah. Sometimes it (laughs) happens. Instead of my own name. I'll just go by a fun pseudonym. Uh, We are doing today the second part of our Oliver C. Haw two-parter. And in the first installment of this, uh, we talked about his medical background and his drifting and his drug addiction and his multiple wives and poor doctor work. Uh, and we ended that episode just after Haw's parents and brothers died in a fire at their home that only he survived and that was a little weird. Uh, and so today we are picking up with the investigation of the fire, basically right after it's over. Yeah. And if, if you have missed part one for some reason, this is the guy that uh, that hit Wilbur Wright in the mouth of the hockey stick. <laughs> when, yeah, when they were kids. Yeah, when we did that episode. So just in case you missed part one and are not going back to listen to it now. Although this will not make as much sense without it. No. <laughs> so. Uh, we're picking up the Haw residences burned down under circumstances that were extremely suspicious. Dr. Walter L. Klein was the county coroner at the time of this fire at the Haw residence. And immediately upon seeing the remains, he found the details of the case to be really surprising. It appeared that all three of the bodies, Samuel Jacob Haw, Mary Frances Metz Haw, and Jesse Lincoln Haw, had all been clumped closely together, which seemed quite odd. There was also very little left of them. Most of their bodies had been consumed in the fire, uh, and only the bones really were remaining. And Klein questioned Haw in the hospital. Uh, just to uh, prompt your memory, Haw had been taken to the hospital for some burns on his leg. And Klein asked him to go over the events of the night of the fire. And Haw told him that the family had had dinner on Sunday evening as usual, that the meal had needed seasoning, and that he had helped his mother with the dishes and gone to bed early at 7.45 p.m. He did not know when the rest of his family went to bed. He said he awoke to the smell of smoke and woke up his brother, Oliver, and Jesse shared a room, and that they tried to call to their parents to rouse them, but they heard nothing, and they saw nothing because of a thick cloud of smoke in the room. Uh, They also didn't feel for their parents in the smoke-filled room, like feeling on their bed. Haw said that the smoke was getting to him, so he ran out the front door for a few breaths of fresh air. And by the time he turned back into the house, Jesse was trapped. Oliver said he yelled for help and then tried to pump water to put out the fire until the burns on his leg wound up hobbling him. The stories Klein heard from the neighbors when he visited the home later that same day were generally unkind when it came to Oliver. Klein once again returned to the hospital. This time, he took additional witnesses uh, to observe this interview and a stenographer to take notes. And Haw told his story again. Klein's next step was to ask that the meager remains of the deceased Haws be held and not buried as scheduled the following, following day. He wanted to examine them. Then he made a press announcement that he intended to arrest Dr. Oliver Haw on a triple charge of first-degree murder. 
And when Hall was taken into police custody that very afternoon, Klein also met with his doctors at the hospital who had come to the conclusion that because of the placement of the burns on Hall's right leg, they felt that the wounds were self-inflicted. And at that point, Hall was discharged from the hospital and brought to jail. Once he was arrested for the murder of his family, it seemed like Hall lost interest in staying sober. He started screaming and demanding morphine in his jail cell. And the jail physician, which incidentally was a job that Hall himself had applied for not long before this incident, administered him small doses in an effort to keep him quiet, although it really didn't do much. Yeah, there's one account where uh, the the jail physician is telling him, like, I can only go up to this amount and that's kind of dangerous. And Hall is like, I do way more than that all the time, uh, even though he had... For a while, it, it appeared been sober and off of drugs. But as news spread of Haw being in custody under suspicion of murder, people began coming forward to talk about their knowledge of his previous nefarious doings. Among them was Dr. Samuel Herman, the brother of Jenny Tui, to whom Oliver had confessed to several murders and the plan to kill his brother. This was actually something Herman had some conflict about. He wanted to help the case in any way that he could, but he was worried that if he revealed that his sister had been a drug addict and that he had any connection at all to Oliver Hall, his own reputation as a respected doctor could suffer for it. Dr. Klein tried to keep Herman's statement confidential, but it got leaked to the press anyway. I never found out if he had much fallout from that one way or the other, if his fears were were legit or if people continued to respect him. Or presumably who leaked that. Yeah. Uh, for his part, Klein took the case very seriously, and it became something of a mission for him. He not only intended to prove that Oliver Haw had murdered his own family, but that he had killed many others as well. As a prisoner, Oliver was unsurprisingly quite difficult. When the time came for him to be moved from the jail to appear before a justice of the peace to be formally charged, he claimed that the burns on his leg rendered him unable to walk, without crutches, even though the wounds themselves had been deemed to be very minor by medical professionals. Just the same, an effort was made to find him crutches rather than argue with him about it. He made additional requests, like a glass of milk and a bucket of water to soak his leg. Yeah, he really was trying to slow down that whole process. While Haw could not stave off the inevitable forever, when he finally was moved, he made a very dramatic scene of it. He walked with a pronounced hobble on his crutches, even though he had been pacing in his cell just fine in previous days. There was much groaning and moaning, and even through the reading of the charges, he twisted and winced and yelled that he needed morphine. He pled not guilty to the charges and was taken back to jail. That same day, which was November 10th, Oliver's parents and brother were buried. There was so little left of their bodies that only one casket was used to inter all three of them. Anna and Oliver's two sons attended the services, and later that afternoon, Anna and Oliver met and spoke about the Haw property. And with the rest of the family dead, Oliver automatically gained ownership of the house. But Anna begged him to sign it over to her. And at first he protested but the request by asking, quote, if I do that, what will become of me? But then he finally acquiesced. Haw knew that he might be in very serious trouble. He was hoping that he could be put in another asylum rather than prison, as he had a plan to once again move to a new location, this time in Indiana, if he could just serve a few months in an asylum and then get released. When a fellow inmate at the jail described the behavior of his sister, who was in an asylum, Haw adopted all those mannerisms in an effort to make a convincing case. 
one of these behaviors didn't last long. Uh, Ha's appetite was stronger than his commitment to just not eat as a fake symptom. And because this case received major newspaper coverage, in part because Dr. Klein gave multiple press statements about his intent to prove Ha's guilt, people started to question just about any death that had taken place when Oliver Ha was near. Anna Ha's mother, Margaret Eckley, in fact, began to speak openly with suspicion about her husband's sudden death years earlier. That is, if you recall, the first suspicious incident that happened around Oliver Haw from our first episode. Additionally, all that news coverage brought out all the curious looky-loos to the burned-out Haw home. As we often find in situations like this, many took home pieces of the rubble as souvenirs. And all the while, the publicity brought letters pouring into the police department from people who believed that Haw had killed someone they knew, and even one from a woman who thought she may have been married to him, but she wasn't sure unless she could see a photo. Dr. Klein finished his coroner's report. Uh, and remember how Ha had been given hyoscine hydrobromide while he was at the Dayton Asylum for the Insane? And then he ordered a bunch right before this all happened. Uh, Klein's report stated that the three deceased family members had an overdose of hyoscine. Klein also told the press that he believed that Ha had been married a total of nine times and that four of those wives had been killed when Ha injected hyoscine into their spines. Newspaper articles compared Ha to other famous serial killers, including former podcast subject H.H. H. Holmes, and even started to try to link him to any number of uh, unsolved murders. Some of the links were really outlandish, but others definitely had at least circumstantial evidence to fuel them. Yeah, basically any uh, serial killer case that that had been lurking and gone unsolved in the U.S. at the time. People were like, maybe that's where Oliver Haw was when nobody knew where he was. It He really sort of became the devil that everyone thought had done all of the bad things. And next up, we're going to uh, discuss the grand jury for the Haw case, as well as the trial. But before we get into that, we're going to pause and have a word from a sponsor. Haw's case was brought before a grand jury, which found cause to indict him for three counts of first-degree murder. Just as a a quick rundown of how a grand jury works in the United States justice system, we're going to give you basics because this becomes really important during the trial. So a grand jury is convened not to determine guilt or innocence, but to determine whether to bring an indictment, which is a formal charge of a serious crime. A grand jury is unlike a normal jury. It doesn't hear the case from both sides. Instead, it works with the prosecutor to see if there's enough substance to the case to merit those formal charges. If the grand jury votes for formal charges, those charges can supersede the existing charges based on a number of factors, including additional evidence. Yeah, it basically answers the question, is there enough evidence to charge this person? Yeah, it kind of expedites the trial once you get to it. Yeah. So a grand jury is not open to the public. Instead of a case being presented by both sides, the prosecutor explains the law to the assembled jury members And then evidence and testimony is examined and heard to determine the soundness of moving forward with formal charges. It's normally a slightly less formal proceeding than an actual trial. And the things that happen in a grand jury are are confidential. And we're explaining all this because once Oliver Hawes criminal proceedings began, a very strange request was issued by his court appointed legal counsel, a team of two attorneys named Conrad J. Mattern and Harry F. Nolan. When Ha appeared in court on February 10th, 1906, to be formally charged and plead on these charges, 
he pled not guilty. And then his attorney, Mattern, asked if the judge would enable the defense to read the normally confidential minutes of the grand jury or have the stenographer from the proceedings testify. This was just as weird as it sounds. It had never happened before in the state of Ohio. And the reason that the defense made such an odd request was that the defendant, Haw, had refused to discuss the case with either of his lawyers. They felt that they needed to see the grand jury information in order to formulate a defense plan. This request was not met well. The prosecution was vehemently against opening the records, and the judge, Oren B. Brown, didn't even feel that he had the power to grant such a request. The request was officially denied four days later when all involved parties returned to court. Judge Brown made it clear that it was really Haw's own problem if he wouldn't help himself by speaking to his lawyers. And the refusal to speak to counsel on Haw's part was, in his lawyers' opinions, an indication of insanity. Plenty of people believed that it was part of the doctor's larger plan to appear insane in the hopes that he might get a shorter sentence of committal to an asylum. And then others believed that he had simply lost track of the various versions of the story he had been telling since they did not all match up and that he opted to stay quiet rather than contradict himself even more. The jury selection process began next on February 21st. 350 men were called for jury selection at this point. Ohio law stated that only eligible voters could serve on a jury, and as passage of the 19th Amendment was still 14 years off, no women could serve on juries at the time. After the 12 men were selected, they were taken to the Haw Farm to see the scene firsthand. Uh, Though the burned-out remains of the house had really been picked over by people looking for grisly souvenirs by then. On February 22nd, the following day, the case began in a courtroom that was packed with spectators. The first portion of the trial forces focused on the charges as they related to the death of Haw's mother, Mary Frances Haw. The primary points made by the prosecution refuted the various versions of Haw's story as told to neighbors on the night of the fire and then to Dr. Klein later. The beds in the Haw home had not appeared to have been slept in except for one to anyone who entered the house, despite Oliver Haw's repeated statement that the family had all been asleep when the blaze started. Additionally, prosecution pointed out that the Haw home was relatively small. It should have been easy for anyone to escape the fire. From the back bedroom to the front door was a span of only about 15 feet. The bedroom where the three people had perished had two windows and two doors, and it was ground level. So for Oliver's brother, Jesse, to have been trapped in there was something of a leap of logic as well. Another key part of the prosecution's case was the fact that Dr. Oliver Haw had ordered a significant amount of hyacinth just prior to the fire. And he had, as we mentioned before, purchased a large amount of oil, and a five-gallon oil can was found nearly empty on the premises after the fire. Was that big trail of oil running through the house also part of the prosecution statement? Yes. Okay. They were saying, like, he bought all this oil. Everyone said they saw an oil fire. The oil can was empty just a couple days after he bought it. You know, because it literally seems like maybe he poured a bunch of oil out and then set it on fire. Like, that seems like the most obvious explanation for why there would be a path of oil on fire running through the house. It does. And there's a whole section of the testimony that gets super deep into the weeds where people are talking about what color the burning oil was, because some of them assert, like, I know what this kind of oil looks like burning, and it's this, it's blue, and others saying, no, no, it's yellow, and that's what I saw. So that gets really, like, I didn't include that, because, like I said, <laughs> it's really in the weeds. 
Uh, mostly it just startles me that, like, that's the most obvious way. Maybe not the most obvious way, but what an incredibly obvious way to burn your own house down. Yes. To literally lay a trail of oil and set it on fire. There is a whole other element. Again, it gets in the weeds with the testimony about whether or not this could have been caused by a defective chimney that had a leak of some sort. But even that, uh, and this could perhaps be my layman's not knowledge of how chimneys work, but I can't imagine one leaking oil in a, right. a clean eight inch wide mm-hmm. trail throughout a home. Nope. As you were saying that, I was like, Sure, sure. A defective chimney that somehow lay a line of eight inch wide oil across that. No. Which lots of people saw because they were running in and out trying to save the possessions. Anyway, the defense's case set out to refute all of this that we've just been talking about and pointed out that there was no real proof to back up the charge against Hall. All of the evidence, they claimed, was circumstantial. Conrad Mattern turned to the jury during open argument, opening arguments and said, when you knit together this chain of circumstantial evidence, hang upon the end of it a human life and see if it will bear the weight. Witnesses took the stand. Uh, the prosecutors had people on hand, many of whom had run in and out of the Haw home trying to save anything of value the night of the blaze, to testify about the empty oil can, the trail of oil, and the untouched beds. And then Thomas Farrell took the stand and testified that Oliver Haw had first told him everyone had gotten out of the house and then admitted later that he had lied about that. Farrell also revealed under cross-examination that many of the community members had gotten together at a meeting a few days after the fire and had their own unofficial trial at which they found Haw guilty. Yeah, this was made like a big deal of during the trial that it's like, well, you already you know, feel how you feel. And there's no way that anyone in the community can ever see any other option because you've already determined his guilt. And also we think you kind of get off on all of the attention you're getting for being part of this trial. Like that he was the man that knew that Oliver Haw had lied to and then changed stories. And yeah. Well then (laughs) detective Frank McBride uh, testifying on March 6th, told the court that he had wanted the remains of the Haws shown to the jury. He believed that Oliver had poisoned his family's dinner. Remember when he mentioned that the dinner needed seasoning and that they had been alive when the fire started, uh, perhaps paralyzed or partially paralyzed, but still aware, which really sets a gruesome, like extra gruesome tone to the whole thing. And he felt that the bodies being so thoroughly burned also indicated that Haw may have even filled their body cavities with oil in a super grisly move to be very, very thorough. Another key point in the prosecution's case was the fact that a pocket watch keys and a locket were found among the remains of the Haws after the blaze, indicating that they were not in their sleeping clothes when they died, but in their day clothes. Additional points of note during the trial indicate uh, included a witness from the drug supply company used by Haw, uh, who was called to speak on the paralyzing effect of hyoscine and did indeed corroborate that it could paralyze you. Uh, and Dr. Haw, who escaped the blaze in only his underclothes and an overcoat he claimed to have hastily grabbed while fleeing, managed to put money and his certificate from the Ohio Board of Medical Examiners in his pockets. Uh, the prosecution pointed out that this suggested some level of preparation, that he just happened to be able to grab those two most important things to him while running out of the house. We're going to talk about some additional testimony about how the case finally played out. But first, we will have a brief word from a sponsor. 
so uh, I know you have been happy with your Squarespace wedding page. I certainly have. I have very much enjoyed my Squarespace sewing blog page that I put together. I can't say enough about how completely easy and fun and really pain-free it is to uh, use their service, to set up your own website, to continually be updating your website. I have... I have written sewing blogs for many other places, and I have had to upload on other people's CMS tools and other people's um, publishing tools, and it, it has never been this easy. So I cannot say enough about just the simplicity, the elegance, and what's really great is that you end up with a really fabulous-looking site. It doesn't look like a clunky handmade site. It looks beautiful and well-designed and clean, and it looks great whether you're looking at a site on a PC or a mobile device. It's just beautiful. It's completely elegantly put together and absolutely fabulous, and you can make really splashy, gorgeous websites. So they will look professionally designed. You don't have to have skill. You don't need to know how to code. The tools are super easy to use. And if you sign up for a domain for a year, you will get it for free through them. So start your free trial site today at Squarespace.com. When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code HISTORY to get 10% off your first purchase. Again, that's Squarespace.com, offer code history, and you too can have a gorgeous new website to call your own. When Dr. Klein was called to testify, it was a huge moment, and the courtroom was packed. He relayed his discussions with Ha in the hospital, working from the notes of the stenographer who accompanied him the second time he talked to the accused. During that second interview, Ha told Klein that while he had been clean for some time, the night of the fire, he did take morphine and Bateman's drops just before going to bed. When Klein asked him if he could have murdered his family and not remembered it, Hall replied, I tell you, when I've taken morphine and cocaine, my mind gets broke down. There's a possibility I murdered them and forgot it. It seems very strange that he'd be like, oh, yeah, I was on drugs after he had been treated for his burns later and was like, no, don't give me morphine. I'm off the stuff. Mm -hmm. So uh, the prosecution seemed intent on using the sensational nature of Hawes background against him. They even called his second wife Delia better, though her testimony actually turned out to be relatively void of the excitement that the onlookers seemed to be hoping for. Uh, Questioning along the lines of what it had been like to live with Oliver Haw had been, uh, objected to, and uh, that objection was sustained. And she was actually the last witness called by the prosecution. The defense's case focused a lot on the fact that there was no clear evidence that Haw had ever taken possession of the hyacinth tablets that he had ordered. There was witness testimony indicating that his brother, Jesse, had picked up the parcel at the post office, had a doctor examine the package, and learning of its contents, gave it to their father. Yeah, we don't know if the uh, the father ever handed it off to Oliver, and there was some suspicion that he would not have, knowing what it contained. Additionally, Haw's lawyers attempted to refute the prosecution's assertion that it would have been easy to escape the burning home unless a person had been drugged. They called witnesses that stated that a person who is asleep in a burning room, even if they awaken, can quickly lose consciousness. And they should doubt on the fire being arson by making the case through expert testimony that it behaved more like the result of a defective chimney flue than a purposely set fire. Again, could not ever explain away that trail of oil that ran through the house. But the nature of the fire and the the smoke color and the sort of choking black smoke uh, they were using to say, no, this could have been the fireplace. All in all, the trial ran for 10 days, during which 54 witnesses had been called. 
The jury was sent out for deliberations at 4.30 p.m. on the final day. As arrangements were being made for their dinner around 6 p.m., they were already ready with their verdict. They returned to the courtroom shortly before 7 p.m. Ha was found guilty of drugging his mother and then dousing her paralyzed body with kerosene and setting her on fire. What about everyone else? Uh, they were only trying that case first. I see. So Oliver Haw's attorneys immediately moved for a new trial, and Haw was taken back to prison, slouched and shuffling. Allegedly, a guard saw him stand up normally and smoke a cigarette when he thought he was out of sight before returning to his more wilted posture. The effort for a new trial continued under the reasoning that A, Haw had bought the hyocene in an effort to treat his own morphine addiction, uh, and that bringing the juries to the crime scene had prejudiced the jurors against Haw, that calling Delia Betters to the stand was illegal because one spouse cannot testify against another. When the new trial motion was overruled by the judge, the defense entered a letter into evidence from family doctor Otho E. Francis, that's the same one who thought that Haw should become a doctor in the first place, stating that he believed Oliver Haw to be mentally unsound. A sanity inquest was set for April 23rd, 1906. This was basically the only chance Haw had at not being executed. And as this was being prepared for, it came to light that Anna Haw had filed for divorce from Oliver several months prior. Yeah, she had actually tried to keep that very quiet because she just didn't want any additional stuff around the trial. Uh, and there was it had been delayed several times and there was actually a, a piece of paperwork that was misfiled that caused it to become public knowledge, which just blew up. She didn't want her kids involved in any of this um, publicity and court battle. And during the second round of court time uh, for the sanity inquest, various witnesses were called for either side, each of which gave their own assessments of Haw's mental state. Both medical professionals and community members took the stand. And in the end, uh, the jury determined that Haw was sane and he was sentenced to death by electric chair. Haw was immediately moved to the Ohio Penitentiary at Columbus, where he was housed in the annex section for prisoners who were sentenced to death. He had no visits from family or friends, but did seem to become more social with the other inmates than he had been with anyone in a long time. In his better days, Oliver Hall was described as a charmer, but no one had seen that side of him for quite some time. Oddly enough, it showed itself in prison as he jested and chatted with the other doomed men. Despite continued efforts on the part of his attorneys to reverse the decision and stay Hall's execution, his time ran out. And right up to the end, his life was filled with odd happenings. A blown fuse at the Columbus Public Service, which supplied power to the penitentiary, caused a 20-minute blackout at the prison just before he was to be put to death. Power was restored, and the chair was tested hastily to make sure it worked. And then Haw's life ended. He died in the electric chair on April 19th of 1907. A statement from Haw ran in several papers just after he was arrested for the murders of his family. Interestingly enough, it harkened back to the beginnings of his medical career when he claimed to be working on a project that would be the next step in human evolution, inspired to some degree by the story of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. It went, quote, they say that I murdered my father, my mother and my brother with hyacinth for the sake of money. Then they say that when I have taken enough of the hyacinth, the man within me disappears and Hyde is the power. 
It seems as though I must do something, destroy something. My only recourse is to get out in the street, out into the open country, away from men and women, lest I murder them. It is possible for me to have killed these people and know nothing of it. It is possible for me to have committed all the other murders of which they accuse me, and in my normal condition be in ignorance. For in my normal condition, I am another man. All I do know is that if I die for these crimes, I shall have at least established the proof of the theory on which I have always insisted that two beings, one of good, the other of evil, may exist in the same man. And in that respect, at least, I shall have rendered a distinct service to posterity. Interesting way to look at it. Haw was buried at the Mount Cavalry Cemetery in Columbus, Ohio. His burial was witnessed only by a reverend and his wife, Anna Haw, and his grave has no headstone. So for those of you that were wildly curious about that kid that uh, David McCullough mentioned that turned out to be a serial killer in his later life, that's the scoop on Oliver Hall. I'm going to say again that I do wish there had been treatment right, for his addictions at the time when he lived, because... That would have saved lives. Undoubtedly. Do you have listener mail that's maybe not so? My listener mail is not gloomy at all. Oh, good. It's lovely. It's two different pieces of listener mail, both about our episode on the Pieta. Uh, the first is from our listener, Catherine. She said, so I was listening to your podcast on the Pieta recently, and at one point you mentioned Michelangelo looking for the perfect piece of marble for his sculpture, which reminded me of a thing I learned in Latin class from years before. Fun fact, dating back to at least Romans, marble dealers used to try and sell people damaged pieces of marble by filling in gaps or cracks with wax, and thus disguising the problem since it would blend with the natural pattern of said mar- marble. All of this is how we got the word sincere, since the Latin sine sire means without wax. While it generally referred to cups and smaller things like that, I think it is something artists would have to be concerned with as well. And while this is not really relevant to the podcast on the Pieta, I hope I have amused you with this fun little piece of info. Indeed, I love stuff like that. Uh, little bits of trivia. Yay. My second one is a postcard from two listeners. I hope I pronounced her name correctly. It's uh, Asha and Regina, or perhaps Asha and Regina. And it says, Dear Holly and Tracy, my best friend and I are traveling through Italy uh, on a college break, and both of us listen to your podcast religiously. After listening to A Brief History of the Pietà, we were very excited to see the Pietà in Rome. Today we finally did, and it was as beautiful as you said. Love from Roma. Uh, and she, uh, the two girls sent us a postcard that they bought at the Vatican, which is an absolutely beautiful photograph of the Pietà. It's really lovely. I love it. Uh, so that is always cool. I love when people get excited about art and art history. So if you would like to write to us, you can. You can do so at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com or at Facebook.com slash History on Twitter at History at Pinterest.com slash History at History.tumblr.com and on Instagram at History. I'm sure that's a shocker. It's all at History. If you would like to research a little bit more about uh, what we talked about today, you can go to our parent site, House of Works. Type in the word executions in the search bar and you'll get a variety of content about different types of execution and people that have been executed, etc. Uh, if you'd like to visit us, you can do so at mistinhistory.com where we have an archive of every single episode of this show ever of all time. And show notes for every single episode that have featured me and Tracy and uh, occasionally some other goodies. Uh, we hope you visit us at mistinhistory.com and howstuffworks.com. <laughs> 
more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 